0: Being different in an authentic way that resonates with people is really how you can stand out and, you know, escape that competitive hurt. Intuitively, you understand that excellence on any extreme almost involves a trade-off. Yeah. So that you aren't able to be excellent across the board, and consumers innately know this. Breakaway brands basically allow for, like, a whole new branch off the tree, mm-hmm.
1: and then a bunch of new stuff can evolve from there. Mm-hmm. So, like, today we're seeing a lot of things that otherwise
0: we wouldn't have seen Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. I'm Anna-Marie Clifton, a product manager at Yammer.
1: And I am Sandy McPherson, founder of A New Thing. Uh Uh-huh.
0: And this month, we're going to be talking about Different, Escaping the Competitive Herd. It's a book by Youngmi Moon, a professor of marketing at Harvard Business School, and also a practitioner in the field.
1: So this book, I found just a little, like, caveat for our repeat listeners, I do feel that this book is very different from the ones that we usually listen to in that it seems like a lot of the ones that we read are very tactical and Mm. give advice and guidance on how to do certain aspects of your job as a PM or as a founder, product-focused founder, whereas this one is a much more theoretical on the general sphere of what is marketing today and what does that mean and how should you think about it as a marketer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was very, very high level. And I really enjoyed it, but definitely not as practical or tactical as most yeah. of the other things we've read.
1: Yeah, so I'm curious to see what we end up talking about and how the conversation goes because my guess is that we'll have fewer like anecdotes or fewer like, oh yeah, I saw this too when I did X than usual, so it should be a completely different... <laughs> i also. I was also telling Anna Marie that we're gonna have to be really careful of how many times we make really bad, different jokes. But anyway, getting into
0: it. Yeah, I guess my first point here is uh, I found this whole entire book incredibly demoralizing. Oh, um, and and not not exactly in a bad way, just in like a very sobering way. So she talks about the hedonic treadmill, mm-hmm. um, which is where we take for granted today what we were longing for yesterday. And so I just started thinking about that a lot, about how we as as product brands, uh, as product companies, in order to maintain a, kind of a long-term viability, there's a bit of an arms race to keep adding features or, I mean, that's really how it ends up actually in, in the product world, it's just like add more features, become a platform, add more features to each of your products on your platform, make those all each platforms. And it just, it seems exhausting when you think about it from this like 10,000 foot view. Yeah. I was thinking a little bit about the Scott Belsky quote that users flock to simple product, product adds features and evolves, takes those users for granted, then those users flock to a new simple product. And I think that that's kind of the fate of a developing product org, right? I mean, it's the, I don't know if it's set in stone
1: fate, it is the probably path of least resistance fate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: And I think that it's the most common fate. I don't think, yeah, it's necessarily the, the fate of the company, though. Yeah, I mean, again, like, the kind of stuff that she's talking about, we hear often in tech, one of the, like, common refrains is, like, feature creep. Mm -hmm. It's, like, another example of this type of thing where people just feel that they need to do things that their competitors are doing because they're doing them. And in order to compete, they have to keep up, like you're saying, the hedonic treadmill, which I think what's interesting is that it's uncommon for people to look at that in a structured way and Mm -hmm. question, is that the only option? Is that the only way that we can do this? Are there other options when we think about how we build companies and how we talk about them and how we market them and what our brand looks and feels like and how we engage with our customers outside of just, like, give them more, 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 Mm because all they want is more, more, more. So I appreciated the, like, step back and reflection on that, I think, uh, assumed, unrecognized behavior that sort of permeates what is marketing today. Mm Yeah. And and
0: marketing driven product development in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well or even I mean not I would I would argue that being user focused as well is problematic. She talks about this at one point where she says that one of the problems is that if you ask your users I mean she a couple of things. She brings up the whole like faster horse mm-hmm. analogy. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that the problem is that when you are user centric As well, so yes, it it happens when you're that way, but also happens when you're user-centric. You're asking your users questions about certain activities that they take in their day-to-day lives. However, the users themselves have artificially constrained themselves to understand what is possible and reasonable in the scope of their experience there to even consider. So, when you ask them about certain problems, they're going to highlight their needs, but through the lens of how they perceive, and interact with the world, Mm. which by default is what already exists and what other people have done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to get out of that completely, I think. And that's why she goes through, she tries to give some structure to the argument around like, these are the different types of brands you can do. And this is how you can be different. Mm -hmm. And this is how you can get off this treadmill of adding more and more features or more and more subcategories. But it's just really hard.
0: Yeah. Before we talk about some of those ways that you can be different, Mm because I thought I really enjoyed that she brought such a robust framework and such a high-level view and, like, second- and third-order view on things, Mm -hmm. um, which is really, really valuable. But one of the things I wanted to talk about first is kind of the core concept behind what this competitive herd is. Mm -hmm. Because she basically sets up the book uh, in the first half being, like, here is what eventualities exist in the competitive herd space. And then the second half of the book is here's how to break those, essentially, So on her definition of the competitive herd, I thought it was a really brilliant idea, and it comes from flock dynamics, which is when you pack a number of animals together and they're in motion, their motions and movements are predicted by those around them and those closest to them. Uh, It was a really fascinating discovery from a, a computer animator who was trying to simulate a flock of birds flying and found that you just basically needed three rules, which was keep going and then do what keeps as much distance as you can between you and your neighbor. So her main thesis is that as a market matures, your value prop as a product, much the same way a bird in a flock will do, is going to be predicated on what your closest neighbors in the, the market space are doing. And that your moves tend to be reactionary and reflexive. As you know, one particular close competitor veers right, you'll also veer right to stay competitive, quote unquote, there. But in the end, you end up creating what she calls a competitive blur. Where from the outside, it's very difficult to distinguish between any particular products in a very uh, saturated market. So the thing I thought was super interesting about this is that the way to get out of it is to stop viewing yourself from within the herd. Mm -hmm. But like to try and get a view from above and outside of it, which kind of falls into a very like lean startup-y methodology of like, getting outside of how you see yourself relative to your competitors and trying to focus on how your customers see yourself relative to your competitors, Mm -hmm. which is very, it's interesting because it's almost like a a counter-argument to her other point around if you, you know, survey people for what they want, obviously you're going to get something that's delineated by what people already experience in the world. But converse to that, if you ask people how they see things, you can start to understand where your opportunities are to actually differentiate. I thought it was a super interesting point that she didn't really highlight this is exactly how to go about this, and there's no playbook for it. But that seemed to be kind of the only way.
1: Yeah. I had, like, related questions on that point of, I think, first as well, the idea of— because what she's she's defining, like, a complex adaptive system, which Mm -hmm. is the the flock of birds. And so it's really intense that you have groups of people sitting inside of, like, cubicles at companies spread all over the world who do not talk to one another Mm -hmm. or have any relationship with one another— Who somehow, like air quotes, magically end up building things and selling things that look exactly the same. Like, that's kind of insane. Mm -hmm. And so, the fact that that is happening across, again, like different products, different categories, different everything is really interesting. And the question that it left me with was what are the skills and tools and processes that all of us are currently doing that we don't quite recognize mm-hmm. that are leading us to do those things. Because it's basically like we're all doing our jobs, we're doing our jobs well, and the default is that lockstep right. innovation behavior. Right. So my question is sort of like, okay, which ones of those are problematic or like causing that outcome versus what other skills and tools and processes, could we potentially implement that would cause us to not do that? Because it seems so, like, again, bizarre that, like, these people across these companies never know or see or know they even exist, end up building things that are the same.
0: It's kind of insane. Yeah, and I think she points out that one of the main contributing factors to that is this two-pronged approach of step one, analyze the market— you know, your competitors do do the analysis, see where they're strong and you're weak, all those things. Like step one, analyze. And then step two, squash all those differences. So mm-hmm. if you're weak somewhere where someone else is strong, right. you know, pump up where you're weak. And so that ends up with this like massive homogeny across yeah. everything in a product area because everyone is constantly evaluating in which places other products are strong compared to them. What was one of the ones that she had with the... The car example where yeah, like, she was like comparing, the Volvo, Lison,
1: I think, to a Volvo or
0: Toyota to a Volvo, or something said Toyota. Yeah. It was so it was the Volvo, which has historically always been known as being this very safe Safety. car. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think Jeep, yes, it was like Jeep, which oh, was okay. historically known for being a very like outdoorsy and rugged car. Yeah. And then as the days, years, decades progress, Volvo has like pushed on an outdoorsy image. And Jeep is pushed on safety, so now you, you can't exactly differentiate between, like, how safe is a Jeep compared to a Volvo because they're both trying to, like, equalize against each other's strengths, which ends up in this, quote-unquote, competitive blur. Yeah. Yeah, so I think—I mean, my, my observation is, you know, she didn't give us an exact playbook, but it seems like stay away from that two-pronged analyze-and-then-squash mm-hmm. approach and then focus on the get outside of your view of your industry from within the industry mm-hmm. and try and get a view of the industry from outside the industry. Right, like get out of the building, uh, although she right. didn't use any kind of terminology around that. Right. But yeah, I think there's a lot of room for a follow-on book from herself or someone else on here's how you do these things or like, yeah. or like frameworks or yeah. playbooks towards that.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I, even I think like a very simple lesson out of that one is potentially focus on your strengths. Don't focus on shoring up your weaknesses, mm-hmm. which is potentially one of these things that just sort of like permeates all existing companies and cultures. And so if that is how people think about how they should be doing what they're doing well, they're going to sort of gravitate toward this end goal or Mm -hmm. end state of everything looks the same because everybody is shoring up their weaknesses, so you end up with this basic outcome.
0: Yeah. So do you want to talk about some of those? So she had these three ways of escaping that mentality, um, these three brand strategies that were differentiating in their nature. Just one thing before that, I think, was just talking about,
1: so if companies operate under this method of how they think about products and how they think about competition. What ends up happening is you have these two de facto marketer strategies. One of them she called augment by addition, which is where you just add more and more and more and more (laughs) and more features. So she talked about toothpaste. So how you go and you buy toothpaste today, and it's like, fights cavities, tartar, fresh teeth things, yeah, (laughs) all this stuff. And, like, you pick up a tube of toothpaste, and it has, like, 20 different characteristics or qualities to it. And you're like, oh, my God. And then you look at the next one, and it has all of those same 20. So there's that one is the main one. Another one that's a very common not focusing on being different and actually working with the let's just move along with the herd leading to— this world of everything looks the same, is augment by multiplication. And so augment by multiplication is, for example, with Coke, they have Coke, they have Diet Coke, they have Cherry Coke, they have Coke Zero, they have Coke with Lime, they have Coke. I don't drink Coke, so I don't know. (laughs) Lots of Cokes. And the underlying problem there is that you end up, if you use one of these strategies, which again are the like core de facto ones that most marketers will use, it leads to almost like a flying cars version of the future, where people imagine just adding on to what they already have and just making more, 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 or, like, slightly cooler or slightly more advanced things instead of totally reimagining, like, oh, actually, no, we won't have, like, this Jetsons future with a house robot that zooms around and flying cars. We will have AI integrated into our lives. UBI will exist for everyone and, like, That is more what we need to do is we need to sort of like step back, recognize those two types of strategies that are so common for what they are. So just knowing that they exist in theory will make you more aware of when you see them. Noting that they only lead to this like incremental progress, shutting that down and being more thoughtful about, Okay, let's try to time shift is her advice. Let's actually think about like the future without any necessarily connection to the current state and be a little freer in how we think about that future to then define what it is that we should be building and selling people because it's a future that seems more standalone and plausible versus built off of a foundation of constant tweaks and tweaks and tweaks. Mm. So you also wanted to talk about, you were saying there were three other, because she does she does a good job, like you said at the beginning, of sort of making like several little clusters of things to help you think about what it is that you're seeing or how you're working So you said there was a cluster of three things that she...
0: Right. So at the beginning, she talks about, like, the traditional strategy, which is basically the approach of uh, identify the weakness and then squash it. And then the two ways that you do that, which are usually by addition, um, adding more features, or multiplication, creating more products. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of, like, sets up the first half of the book to kind of go over all of that. And then the second half of the book is all around, like, contrasting, like, these three other things that you can do instead. And oh yeah yeah yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that she, she talked about um even before going into that mm-hmm. she talks about how it's not an exhaustive list of ways to be different. And I did appreciate that because she does call out these three archetypes of differentiation that do tend to work, but she also points out that they're not an exhaustive list of how to differentiate. Mm-hmm. Um and the point is just to think about being different as good in the first place right. and think about which type of different will, you know, strike a value chord in your customer base. She also does have a, a nice appropriate side note about how just being different isn't necessarily great. Right, right. But being different in an authentic way that resonates with people is really how you can stand out and you know escape that competitive herd. So she has these three prototypical ways of doing that escape. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just talk about what those are briefly and mm-hmm. then kind of dive into them. Sounds good. So one is the reverse. Uh, So the reverse brand is... Reverse positioned brand. The reverse positioned brand. (laughs) So the concept of that is to, as a brand, identify where everyone is competing, and which direction they're going, and then just, like, throw on the brakes, back it up, and, like, see if you can be an opposite to that. So an example that she gave for this was when AOL and Yahoo and AltaVista and everyone was competing to have, like, the most widgets and doodads on their homepage of the internet, the Google approach of being absolutely nothing but a search bar offered up such a, like a breath of fresh air to people because it was so, so different from everything else that the industry was heading towards that people just like flocked over to Google. So it's like reversal. The second one is kind of interesting. It's She called it the Breakaway. Um, and the Breakaway brand is typified by... Identifying some category that you're normally positioned within and then adding a different category, or like saying that you're not just that, you're this other category. And one of her main examples there was the cartoon show The Simpsons, which is a cartoon show, which is st- historically seen as like a children's show, but then positioned as an adult sitcom. And so that cross section of two like very different brand categories uh, gives you this breakaway. I actually I take issue with the term breakaway because I didn't find how breakaway-y it was. It seemed much more like find a cross-section between mm-hmm. brand categories. And then the third one that she mentioned was the hostile one, which is being as divisive as possible as a brand strategy and shunning some in the interest of like really attracting others. And that one, I think, was kind of hysterical. Uh, it's mm-hmm. one of the, the brands she mentioned there was Marmite, which is disgusting. Uh, Agreed. <laughs> but some people really love it. And uh, they actually, like, they really lean into this as a brand, the Marmite brand, where they even have a website that's devoted to whether you love it or hate it. Like, you, you enter different parts of the website. And they encourage people to band together over how much they hate the taste of Marmite. And anything that's that galvanizing and uh, divisive has a tendency to develop wings uh, and stay very, very prominent in people's minds. So do you want to talk a little bit about each of those? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: so I think the, yeah, so reverse position brand. So again, that's the example Marie gave around Google. And the one thing that she notes here is how you have to be careful that it's not just about being, like, cheaper or lower quality, but it's recognizing what is a really strong value proposition to your users, customers, stripping it down to just, like, focus on that thing very specifically in addition to adding something that people may not expect from your category or may not know that they want. So I think in the case of Google, what that would have been would have been something like, this is, oh my God, I'm not getting confused by the bajillion things flashing in my face right now. I want to search for something, I just type right here and it's so clean and easy to use. The other, this idea of giving people something that's like special or shiny that they usually don't get in the category that you're playing in. She gives the example of JetBlue and how when JetBlue first came out, they have no first class. They don't give you free meals, but you have lots of legroom and you had a TV in every seat. And so there are these things that they purposefully choose to withhold from customers, but at the same time, they give you access to other things that if you had been asked, you wouldn't have said, I value that highly and I really want that. But through going through the experience, you recognize like, wow, something here is different and I like it.
0: I'm wondering, so I have an idea in my mind here, but I'm wondering if you have any particular recent product that you can point to that you would say is like a reversal position mm-hmm. brand or reverse position brand. The one that I was thinking about was Signal. Which I think Signal oh. as a messaging platform came out. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. I started using it in 2016, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, It probably came out a few years before that. But uh, the the past few years have been marked in the messaging space by kind of a ballooning of features and kind of toys, I would say. Like toys within messaging, GIFs, stickers, games, reactions, all sorts of things like that. And to come out as a messaging product that has almost none of that, like barely even image sharing, yeah. like Signal is like so few things, but gives you top of class encryption and security measures. Mm-hmm. I think that would be an example yeah. of a reversal. That's a very good example. Reverse position brand.
1: Yeah. I still don't have one. So
0: we'll just <laughs> stick with that one. All right. <laughs> the
1: second one was yeah, the other breakaway brand. How did you define this one? You define this one as...
0: So I think it's like a cross-section. It's like right. taking a brand that's positioned within one category very squarely mm-hmm. and then saying that you're going to like reposition it like with one foot in that category and one foot in another one. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the example that I really liked that she gave in the book was a Frappuccino. And how before, like, Starbucks came out with the Frappuccino, the idea of, like, sitting at your desk and slurping on a caffeinated milkshake, people would have been like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, that's not something that you should be doing at 2 Mm p.m. sitting at your desk before our meeting. But they took that and they recognized that, like, oh, no, actually, we can make that work. If, and again, the underlying, like, Problem or thing that you have to navigate as you're doing one of these breakaway brands is that consumers really have to actually like buy into it. Like, you have to recognize what are the product boundaries that people are operating within, what is their level of flexibility, and how far can you push outside of those boundaries without it being too far. Mm-hmm. And so, you have this balance of like, what's here, what do people think, and what do people understand about this category, what do they see as the boundaries, how do I not make it. Like, for example, probably if Starbucks started selling alcoholic frappuccinos, (laughs) like that might—do you know what I mean? Like, if if frappuccinos had started as, like, coffee with alcohol, that would maybe be too much because how people associate and affiliate the role of Starbucks in Mm -hmm. their lives, that doesn't really sit inside of that. Mm -hmm. And she gave a couple other examples that I really liked for this breakaway idea. One of them was the iBo, the Sony robot dog Mm -hmm. thing. And I guess the story is, and it's been a while since I read this book, but the story was that the people at Sony wanted to get AI and robots into homes and to get an understanding of how people interact with them, collect some data, but the problem was their humanoid, like human-type robot Was just not very good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they had these problems where they're like, you know, if we put it in someone's home, it's just going to error out on everything. (laughs) And, like, everyone will hate it. And I think people did. So then they had this brilliant idea of, oh, if we make it so that it's a pet, the boundaries of what they understand a pet to operate in and the behaviors and qualities that people expect for a pet— are very different than the boundaries and the expectations that people set on a human. Mm -hmm. So if they have them around a pet, you know, it can be cute and funny and make mistakes and you, like, forgive it anyway. Versus with a robot, it's never supposed to mess up. It's always supposed to do everything perfectly fine. And all of these other qualities that they knew they couldn't meet, but they were like, how do we still get the outcome being this, like, data and research and understanding that we need? And that was also something that... I'm trying to remember. I did write a blog post about this at one point. But this was, I found, one of the problems with a prototype that I released last year. It was on Messenger. It was this thing called Sandy's Double. And it was a digital version of me that you could chat with. And I found that one of the problems with that was that people assumed that... I think part of my issue was that a lot of people at the time were looking at these types of things that you could talk to over chat as being personal assistants and Mm. being omnipotent beings. Mm. And so my problem was that people would come in and use Sandy's double and they would expect it to know everything and to Mm. be able to answer every question. And it was something that was difficult because I hadn't clearly enough made it obvious how and why this thing was different than their expectations of this is a personal assistant. This is like basically a search, this is like a query tool in a conversation format. And so that led to people having a uh, poor experience because of those expectations not being lined up.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have an uh, example or any thought of like a modern day, within the past few years, a breakaway branded product? Why do you? I haven't prepared these. I know, episodes. I have not. Right? I know, I know. I've, the only
1: thing, <laughs> I've seen one, you thinking for the past well,
0: like, <laughs> two minutes while I blabbed. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, I could come up with something really <laughs> clever to say and look really <laughs> smart. So the only one I could come up with is the Echo. I like think the mm. Amazon Echo is like a search engine as a physical device, mm. but it doesn't quite. This whole category of brand positioning of this breakaway is mm. not quite. What about like obvious to me?
1: Maybe like the shoes with no
0: soles or with like no drop. You're like on like, like the barefoot the val- shoes, ballerina slippers, barefoot oh, shoes. the um, Vibrams, the Vibrams, the toe shoes, yeah. the creepy things. Yeah, yeah, they're creepy. <laughs> I feel like they're
1: a little bit in that because again, people had to recognize like this is still a shoe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I can wear this while I exercise. I think, if anything, it's probably, like, not an overly successful breakaway brand because you and I both think they're gross. Yeah.
0: But, like, if they
1: had, like, broader acceptance, then maybe that would be an example. I, there is—I um, mean, they have since, like, pushed out into—they do, like, low-drop shoes where they have, like, a, a low—the ah. um, millimeter drop from the heel to the toe is, like, mm-hmm. two millimeters or three millimeters or sometimes zero. And so this idea of having low-drop shoes became valuable to people. Yeah. Yeah. Think. Uh, and that's not like, uh, and I think the reason that works is because it's not as crazy as mm. like we can see your toes mm-hmm. and you are walking completely flat
0: on the ground. So with the low drop shoes, it, does it have individual toe
1: no. pieces? No. Okay, no. So, so the like idea one. is more just like the health benefits right. of you not having an elevated heel and a lower toe gotcha. in a shoe that you do exercise type things. Gotcha. Or
0: every day. There's something that seems like an obvious, like, this is what a breakaway brand is. Yeah. I, think,
1: I, I did like the example they gave in the book about The Simpsons because it sort of gave me some appreciation for. So I like Rick and Morty, Mm -hmm. and it's the idea of, like, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought, like, this would not exist if it hadn't been for The Simpsons. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. (laughs) Rick and Morty (laughs) is possible because of The Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's—what's nice is that breakaway brands basically allow for, like, a whole new branch off the tree, Mm -hmm. and then a bunch of new stuff can evolve from there. Mm -hmm. So, like, today we're seeing a lot of things that otherwise we wouldn't have seen. I mean, I could even argue—I'm sitting here looking at Anna Marie's can of LaCroix. And, like, well, that, again, this idea of, like, there was so much, like, water and sparkling water. And this is, again, one of the, like, when that branch started. It's mm. now really big and huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, a but flavored sparkling water. But there was an, an initial breakaway that led to what is now a hyper—what's the word that she uses? Hypermature. Hypermature category of, yeah, yeah still sparkling waters.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that that framing of it where it's that because you like kind of crossbreed two categories, mm-hmm. you create a new branch mm. that can then evolve. And you get to own for like a small period of time. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why I said this book is so demoralizing, is because even when <laughs> you are successful, yeah, you have to keep you have to find a new thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, she does she does talk about uh, another way that she explains it is it intervenes in how consumers process our classification of things. Mm. And offers us an alternative category rubric to replace the default one. So mm. similar to what you're saying, maybe the two, the axes of how we define things, you add a third one or the one of them changes. Mm-hmm. And that allows for different brands to become dominant or to exist at all.
0: Yeah. So the third one, uh, and my personal favorite, mm-hmm. is the Hostel brand, mm-hmm. and I just love this. So this concept is of the brand that is kind of divisive, and by causing some people to hate it and others to love it, it causes this whole like spin of conversation. You can kind of retain that intense loyalty from the people who love it because they're marked in their identity in some way by the fact that they don't hate this thing. So, some examples, I love the Birkenstock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also, you know, it was funny to see Red Bull called out as yeah. a, a hostile brand because I don't know much about its history. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the brand quite well. I don't know that I've ever tasted Red Bull. What? I, I don't think I, I don't know that I ever have, but it is one of the, it's consistently one of the like most well recognized or like best brands or whatever. Yeah. Like Red Bull and Lego go back and forth on like best brand. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting.
0: <laughs> uh, all the time. Yeah. But apparently they had a really a hostile approach to marketing, which is, if you don't love it, that's on you, and that's okay, because the people who do love it, they get it. And I thought that was just a really interesting uh, approach to, like, just product positioning in general.
1: Yeah. it's. Have you heard of—I always question myself. I'm like, does this exist in America or Canada or both? So I never know if people know things. Do you have Buckley's no. cough syrup? No. Okay, so maybe it's Canadian. So it's this cough syrup that exists, and I'm try- I was hoping you could help me. I was hoping it was American. The slogan is, like— it tastes horrible, but it works, (laughs) or something like that. Or it tastes gross, but I forget Mm -hmm. what it is. And it's literally, like, that is their... And they say it, like, in all of their radio ads, on their Mm. TV ads. Their TV ads are very simple, and it's like, probably I'm making this up, but I'm having slight memories of, like, somebody eating, like, taking a spoonful of the cough medicine and being like, And then (laughs) the slogan being like, it tastes horrible, bad, whatever, but it works. And so they're very much in that camp of... We know that there are all of these qualities that products in our category are supposed to get A-pluses on. Mm -hmm. And we have chosen to focus our energies on the ones that we think matter. And that is that you stop coughing. Mm -hmm. And that's all we're going to focus on. And I think it leads to this sense of like, oh, well, if you're spending all of your time and resources on that thing that really matters to me, and you're not wasting your time on making it taste good— then potentially it's like this it's like, like finite it's like the finite pie view of the world it's like okay then therefore you're devoting the your resources to the thing that i want which is coughing i'm not going to cough because it tastes bad
0: yeah she had this amazing quote around how trade offs intuitively you understand that excellence on any extreme almost involves a trade off yeah so that you won't be able yeah. you aren't able to be excellent across the board mm-hmm. and consumers innately know this uh, so when you do lean in to certain things as being the ones that you will be excellent on, and then just like accept that you'll be quite bad at the others, you can actually use that as a marketing advantage and highlight that you're bad at the others yeah. to uh, anchor on people's expectation that you've put your finite amount of energy to just being good at the one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I loved that. It also, it made me think of a... Um, I'm not sure, did you ever read Dataclism by um, Christian Ritter? The oh,
1: no. Okay, I've Cupid i read founder? a bunch of the blog, but I have not read the book. Yeah,
0: so I think, I mean, and maybe this was from the blog as well, but one of the things that I remember, and I might misquote this stat here, but I remember there was a, a chapter on how if you were, like, a three, a rated as a three at a one-to-five scale, you're much more likely to get a lot of messages and a lot of dates if you get mostly ones and fives, versus if you're actually a three... And everyone on average is actually rating you as a three, you tend to get very, very few messages. Mm -hmm. But people who are extremely polarizing, um, where people either rated them as like completely unattractive or very attractive, are much more likely to actually like get a good match and, like, churn off of the system because you, like, attract people to those extreme traits that Mm -hmm. they're looking for. And actually, I'm trying to remember precisely. I think they might have had more messages if they were rated a 3 but it was a polarized 3 than if they were rated a 4 on average. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, like, a pretty stable 4. It's just better to be super attractive on a few characteristics than, like, kind of okay across the board. Gotcha.
1: That's funny. I do know she gave some other examples around... Not examples, but she tried to dive into the like psychology of the hostile brand in a couple other ways. One of her ideas was that these hostile brands often make you put in work to get access to them or to have them. So she gives the example of Bape, which is a clothing brand and... Some of their shops will actually limit, like, you can go in and they'll only let you leave with one (laughs) T-shirt. And so you have to put in a lot of work. And so there's this idea, I forget what it's called, but there's, like, the idea of, they've done studies of this with children where it's, like, if you give a child a toy versus if they build the toy themselves and then you evaluate willingness to pay, the willingness to pay on the item that you have built will be higher. Even if it's uglier and, like, (laughs) but the fact that you put effort into it to then have it means that you value it higher. So the other thing with the hostile brands, by making it harder to access or have or own, one of the questions that she asks is, is this because of this idea where people generally feel closer and they attribute higher value to things where they have to put work in to actually have them? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, she hints also at, like, what's going on with luxury brands, where luxury brands sort of infer, like, they're very expensive, and so therefore you put in a lot of money, which Mm -hmm. means you put in a lot of work, and, like, to have that thing. And so luxury brands, by definition, are hostile brands because Mm -hmm. they're so difficult for many people to access.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite notes on that point is the um, lobster as a luxury food item (laughs) is a completely (laughs) manufactured concept, um, and the price is so high in order to make you want it such that the lobster market typically floods with too much lobster because there's not enough demand for that price point. Mm -hmm. But there's just a common understanding around food marketing that if you lower the price of lobster to reflect the supply people would stop liking it as much. Right. So instead, they tend to like create like lobster rolls and lobster mac and cheese and all these other items that are full of the surplus lobster that they can't sell, mm-hmm. but they can price way lower because it's not like deflating the cost of the luxury good. That's funny. It's funny. Super but interesting. Again,
1: like this seems to be the Canada episode, but like I'm from Eastern Canada where we would have like a huge pot on the beach full of 40 lobsters. We would just boil them and eat them. And so for me, it was never perceived of as being like a luxury item. So it's also interesting to think about, like, where are you operating? Mm. What are the qualities that people in your market perceive of as being high value versus not? And that's probably different if you're going to be in, you know, one country, one segment of a Mm. country, one culture, one wherever you're going to go. Things will be different, and you have to assess and understand how is value measured and perceived
0: by the different people that are buying or using your product. So one note across these three different categories of reverse, breakaway, and hostile is that they don't seem equal in terms of what they're doing, not in terms of their impact, but the way that they approach their impact. They're each avenues of differentiation as perceived by the consumer. But the reversal is very much a like product focused change. Right? Like if you are a reversal product, it's Quite often, something that's different in your product that makes it a reversal, versus the breakaway and specifically the hostile seem very much about marketing and brand positioning, Mm -hmm. and much less about like intrinsic attributes of the product, right? Like it's not—it's
1: not that like the Bape t-shirts are like
0: by hostile they're not like spiky right exactly. <laughs> exactly they don't harm you when you wear them exactly it's something that basically you could become a hostile brand just through your marketing efforts yeah. but you couldn't become a reversal brand just through marketing efforts like that's a product effort and then you want to market it appropriately and like find ways to like highlight that uh, with marketing but it's interesting and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what this means to the overall framework but I don't think that they are kind of on the same playing field yeah
1: Another thing that I appreciated, so she gave these three, I think she calls them brand prototypes, and what she does after going through those at the end, she's like, just so you know, though, those aren't all of them. Mm -hmm. Like, there are lots of different ways to be creative, and that's basically what this is. It's just being creative and how you think about your product and your product category market. And so she gives two examples, which I thought were really good. One of them was Harley Davidson, Mm -hmm. and how Harley Davidson has this idea of, you know, danger and <laughs> outlaws and bad boys. Bad boy, whatever. Like that's the when you think of Harleys, that's what they try to make you think about. However, most of the people who drive Harleys are affluent, middle-aged, white-collar professionals <laughs> who like don't need to wear ripped clothing and, you know, aren't the type of people you would expect to see at a bike rally. But they sell that type of merchandise because they're creating this, like, world that those people want to be a part of. And they need the props and services to do that. They make the rallies. Again, they organize these rallies where people will, you know, take time off work from their, like, job as a lawyer to go to the Harley rally on Friday. (laughs) And so they're constructing this reality that their customers want. The other example that she gives is Dove and their Campaign for Real Beauty And she compares the two of them where Harley basically created a fantasy for their customers. Dove's tactic was similar in that it was the complete opposite, which was they basically debunked fantasy. And so she gives these two examples as like these clearly don't fall into one of those three categories, the hostile, the breakaway, or the reverse. But it again recognizes that we're stuck in these categories and understanding of where our products live We understand, like, the features that they need to have. How do we just, like, completely get outside of that and do something different? It has to be significant. It has to be something that people
0: can recognize, and it has to reverberate with them. Mm. So, yeah, to that point of lots of ways to find and be different, one of the things that struck me about a lot of the examples in this book is the cases where people or where particular brands went a different route— were often very gutsy um, Mm. and risky And times when people said, this is a bad idea, you know. I was actually, on on one hand, I was kind of curious what the the anti-points were. (laughs) Um, Where were the examples of brands that tried to do these kinds of different things but actually failed? Because, you know, a lot of times you're going out on a limb and kind of guessing that, like, well, in the case of Mini Cooper, they leaned in really hard to the fact that they were a smaller car in, like, a big car era. And that could have been a really bad move, (laughs) right? Like, that could have really totally... Screwed them over. So, one thing that she talked about to that point is that there are two different ways of capturing reality, she says, by the things that are measurable and the things that are not. And because the two do not overlap very much, it's easy for proponents of either to diminish the significance of the other. If you only pay attention to things that you can measure, you only pay attention to the things that are easily measurable. And in that process, you can miss a lot. So, I thought that was a really beautiful kind of hat tip to the fact that a lot of these things are guesses, in Mm -hmm. a way, and built on intuition, but that intuition is difficult to verify in a lot of cases. So it got me to thinking, and uh, it's kind of one of the few times when this book actually caused me to reflect on the work of product management. (laughs) Um, But I kind of started thinking about, you know, in what ways this affects product management, the fact that, you know, not everything is measurable. um, And if you focus, as PMs tend to do, on measurable things, you'll miss the unmeasurable ones. So I pulled out one point that I wanted to discuss and share. I think it's really easy for PMs to get quagmired by needing to have perfect information before moving forward on an idea, and not necessarily knowing how to prioritize between trade-offs when there's like no actual data that can support one or the other, or not clear data or definitive data. And I think I see a lot of PMs, especially new in the industry, get completely stalled around that. But the problem is, because as a PM, you're often a hub in the organization When you make a decision, you'll have to defend that to many different role types, and those people have different needs and assumptions and agendas, but you need to be able to say, like, yes, we're moving forward in this direction because of X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z might not be very buttoned up measurable things. So my reflection on that and my advice to PMs is to make sure you're constantly developing uh, and uncovering as many frameworks and heuristics as you can to help you define and explain how you make decisions, because that practice of explaining your decision-making process uh, and being able to do that quickly and effectively is going to be one of the greatest assets that you could have as a product manager. So talking about process, not just the outcome. Exactly, yes, because you need to be able to get people on board with your process because you're not necessarily always going to have something that you can say, because we see X, Y, and Z is up 30%, therefore we should invest further, blah, blah, blah. A lot of times that stuff is going to be much more intuition-driven and you need to be able to define in which ways it's intuition driven and why it's valuable to go in that direction to a lot of different people coming from different roles with different base level assumptions. So I think it's a trap that many PMs fall into, it's just being able to define the decisions around measurable inputs. So find ways to get out of that. It's my advice. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. So you're right, reminding me of a lot of things that like I'm seeing and thinking about recently in my day-to-day and one of them is Just in working on a product that's basically in a new category, one of the issues is that in order to do something that is new and different, you need to not look to the metrics that have been used Mm. for what exists now. Because if you're doing something different, probably it's not going to follow those same metrics. So I found it really interesting when I was out pitching people a few months ago, raising money, a couple people came back to me with like, come back to me when you have... X metric. And I would look at that and kind of be like, and again, I know obviously the what I'm working on and I understand the product more deeply than most people in this potential category more than a lot of the people I was talking to. And so it was interesting because they clearly, in speaking to me, recognized like, oh yeah, that's kind of off in that space over there. And that's new and interesting. And I don't know what's over there. Cool. But what is your this metric, this Mm -hmm. metric that comes from this, like, existing category? And Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, don't you see that, like,
0: I can't use those things to understand this new thing? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to that point, I was having a conversation recently with a founder of... Series D, like a quite successful startup, mm-hmm. um several hundred employees. and we were talking about this concept of defining which metrics you're going to be evaluated by, mm-hmm. specifically when you're raising early VC money because it's so uh, you know he was talking to me about how it's so easy to get tripped up by following the metric of the space that people understand. And then if you do give those metrics and like say, like this, okay, this is that metric that I'm going to qualify myself by, then not only is that a problem for like round one, But round two, when you come back, if you don't show progress on that metric, which may not actually matter for your business, you won't be able to raise again because you were measured in the first place on, you know, 10,000 XYZs. So how do you not have 100,000 now when that's not where you want to be putting your energy towards like driving that number up? Yeah,
1: that was that was one thing also personally that always annoyed me with Twitter Is that Twitter, especially after they became public, they allowed the market to ascribe these metrics onto their use Mm. that made sense for, like, social network products but don't make sense for Twitter. And they tried to sort of, like, mix them up a little bit and, like, question and push back on, like, Mm. should we really be evaluated on that when we have, like— Twitter handles for every sports game, like, flashing on the screen all of the time. And, like, clearly Facebook isn't going to have their Facebook profile Mm -hmm. in that same position. And so they're just—they're clearly very different products, but they were kind of, like, glommed together into this overarching category of, like, social things. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing that I sort of always wish Twitter had done a better job of would just be to actually, like, siphon off and be like, you know, we are different in this way. This is what matters. This is how we understand our Mm -hmm. success. One other thing that your point about how to succeed as a PM inside of a company pushing through a product and questioning, like, what are the metrics versus focusing on the process is reminding me of potentially, I've never been in this situation, but it's hinting at why it could potentially be difficult to create a brand new product inside of a big company versus buying an external one mm. because the external one is going to have much more freedom to establish what those metrics are themselves solely based off of that product itself mm-hmm. versus if you're building something new inside of a company it's all connected to what already exists inside of the existing company and like again people's just like defaults on what they how they think about metrics and what metrics generally matter for certain types of things And I'm sure that's like a whole another like level of it's probably difficult to like work on features and stuff. But it's probably also much more difficult if you're off in the corner being like, hey, Mm. I recently talked to this big tech company and they're like basically building a brand new thing inside of their existing product. And it's going to be really hard. (laughs) But thinking about that now, I'm like, oh, wow, I have no idea what type of metrics that this bigger organization is going to put on them. They're probably not going to be ones that will actually be most likely to point to a successful future for that feature, unfortunately. Because the company itself, you know, they're probably going to IPO in the next year or two. And so they have certain things that they need to
0: make sure are, like, concrete and understood. Yeah, uh, that's one of the many things that I think makes building new products inside of an existing company very challenging. And we don't see very many success stories Yeah, that's the thing, is that's probably why a lot of them fail.
1: So, I think we're ready to wrap up. Are you ready oh, to ready. wrap up? Yeah. Okay. So, I actually read this book a long time ago, like five years ago or something. Oh. And then we wanted to do, we, we've been going through, we asked on Twitter, we were like, hey, folks, what type of book, what like topic do you want us to cover next? One of the ones that came up was marketing. And so, I'd read this book five-ish years ago. I was like, I think I remember that book being good. Mm. <laughs> Maybe let's reread it. And... It was as good as I remember. I'm not sure. I think some of it made a little bit more sense at this point in time because now I've actually built some things and done some stuff. But I liked it a lot. Again, it was very different from the other ones. It's much more theoretical than tactical. But I think as well that when it comes to marketing, it's probably the kind of thing where it's hard to give that type of tactical advice unless we were to read like a SaaS marketing, like whatever, like a very specific book. So I really enjoyed it. I thought she did a really great job um, defining, like, loose categories, defining sort of processes to kind of just, like, observe the world that you are in, that you haven't even recognized you're in. Do you see it now? Mm. What about this way over here? I thought that was really well done.
0: Yeah, she kind of described it at one point in the book that she was basically trying to give new language and second-order thoughts around things that we may have already thought about or, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of experienced tangentially. Kind of along the same vein as the rabbit duck image, where you just like shift your perspective on it to get like a new context for what that image is. So, in that sense, I thought the book was incredibly successful. It's definitely, I would say, up leveled my ability to think about brand positioning in general and, you know, what are the trade offs when you go in one direction of a market versus another. I think the biggest thing for me, from my perspective, is it's not incredibly valuable as an individual PM. I think it's just going to give me a better conversational platform for you know, speaking with my head of product or head of marketing around, like, why do we make these decisions? And, like, help me understand that because in this light, it might be, a, you know, ill-advised move right. or, like, here mm-hmm. we might consider it this way. So, basically, I've just developed a new set of vocabulary from this book that I think in the long run, especially, you know, if I start thinking about things like founding my own company or things like that, will would become incredibly useful. But in this time, it's just, you know, PM is a hub and you got to be able to talk to everybody. So, right. level up your language in right. all the different areas. Where are you on score? Mm, ponies. I you know, I'd say it's a solid three point five. Okay. Not I mean, I do think that there are books that are ones. I think we read <laughs> we read a two, I think, at one point and then decided not to air the recording yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. But I would say three point five is still it's still a healthy score. Okay. It has, you know, helped me in my ability to navigate the world of marketing, but it's not something that's totally mind blowing. Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna give
1: it a four. I'm gonna give it like a solid four. No bows. No stripes or whatever other
0: yeah, sure accoutrements
1: we, we generally stick on our ponies yeah i'm gonna give it a solid four
0: and i think that's probably because it's more practical for you right now as probably. like a founder yeah, thinking. you
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah good point thanks everyone for listening uh this was the clearly product book club podcast you can find us on twitter at clearly product definitely tweet at us and let us know if you have any books or topics you'd like us to cover
1: you can find me sandy mcpherson on twitter at sandy mac s-a-n-d-i-m-a-c and I'm at tweet Anna Marie. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe.